Welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. My name is George. Our guest in this episode is Travis Ritchie. Travis is one of the most genuine and generous people I have ever met in my life. Uh, We had tons of fun recording with him. He's just an amazing guy, and you're going to love listening to his story in this episode. This episode is going to be very powerful for everyone who listens, not just fathers, because everyone, no matter who we are or where we came from, will face something in our life that is extremely challenging, some unfortunate circumstance that maybe we can't really control. Travis's story is a great example of this. He had to spend two years in prison for something that, quite frankly, he probably didn't deserve to go to. And he was faced with that choice. He could either get angry and play the victim, or he could decide to do something positive with this experience. And that's exactly what he did. I'll leave the details to to the episode, but what I want everyone to take from this amazing story is how you can do the same in your own life. Regardless of what happens, we can choose to make a positive impact with the negative experience. So I'm excited to share this episode with you. Aside from Travis's backstory, he shares advice on raising children, having a strong marriage, and just general life advice that's going to help everyone listen. So I'm super excited to present to you Mr. Travis Ritchie. Travis Ritchie, welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. I am super excited to uh, have you on and unpack your story and learn from you. Um, so how are you doing, man? Happy to be here. Stoked. Stoked, man. Yeah, so we've been, we've been talking backstage. We already got a little preview of what's coming. I'm, I'm really excited to dive into all these topics now. Um, you know, I've obviously researched a little bit, but Getting, getting the personal interaction is very different than just watching it on, online, right? So let me try and uh, very high level summarize who you are for those who may not be aware. And uh, you can fill in all the gaps I'm probably going to miss because there's about 100 things to list <laughs> if we went through them all. But you're a husband and father. You have four kids. You've been married for 15 years. Congratulations. And uh, you're an entrepreneur, financial mind, a lot of, lot of background in the world of finance. Um, and then currently you're running multiple things, uh, lots of small businesses, real estate. Um, you also do the inner circle and, um, that's kind of a mentorship kind of coaching program, right? Correct. Okay. So, uh, you know, there, I'm sure there's a lot more, but I'll pause there and you can, <laughs> you can introduce yourself in anything that I've failed to summarize. No, that's it. That's it guys. I'm happy okay. to be here. I think, uh, the world needs a boatload of present fathers. That's for amen. Sure. Indeed. Yeah. So uh, we all have a mutual connection. David Waldy was our guest and he quoted you in that episode saying, when dad comes home, he sets the tone. And I love that. I'm, I've internalized that one for me. So uh, why don't we start with your family? Obviously, being a present father is super important to you. So just describe your, your uh, family now and uh, what makes Travis a, a dad that's uh, worth emulating. Oh, boy. Boy, that's a tough. that's a tough second question to follow up with for sure. But yeah, Melissa and I've been married 15 years. We've got four beautiful little ones and uh, they're beautiful because she's beautiful and hopefully they're a little bit more rugged in the street because of me. But uh, yeah, we as a family have a, have a pretty straightforward dynamic. Um, I, I tell my kids and, and we just had this conversation yesterday, as a matter of fact, being, you know, January 1 and everybody's setting goals. Um, I tell my kids that that I don't live for the dash. And I'll unpack that just real briefly for everybody. When you're looking at a headstone, you kind of have a birth date and a death date, right? And then that dash in the middle. Um, I think when you look at that dash, that's how small life actually really is. And oftentimes you hear people say, you know, the, the five most powerful worlds in the English language, you are going to die. And so if you're a lot of us, you've considered 
what's my purpose? You've wandered, you've waited. And I think oftentimes that dash becomes more and more restrictive the more time that you have here on this earth. And my biggest push to everybody listening to this and, and my children is that there's 150,000 books on Amazon tonight that'll tell you how to find your purpose. There's a million fantastic podcasts like this out there that will stretch you. A Google search will take you to all of the necessary rabbit holes of the interwebs to help you become fantastic. But I want to make sure that you understand everything you're looking for is inside of you. That God-given talent is inside of you to become who you've always wanted to be. It's inside of you. And it's up to us to understand that life is this finite piece of pie if we want to play the game that way. But if we want to just live for the dash, then we're going to go to that deathbed with a lot of regrets. So I tell my kids every day, we're not living for that. We are living for the opportunities that God is going to afford us. We're going to play all out and we're going to be fantastic humans in the interim. Amen. So that's what, that's my, that's my general synopsis of how I run my family. Man, that was uh you knocked that one out of the park. Well, great start. Good job. I give you a tough one and took it in stride. So, um, man, can we maybe go to your background and your upbringing? Cause I think, uh, that there's, there's a good story to tell there. And obviously, uh, you know, you can learn from bad examples just like you can good ones. And I think you're a great, a great example of that playing out. So where yeah. you'd like to start just kind of growing up and what it was like for you. Yeah, you can definitely learn from, from poor examples. I, I tell people that all the time, like that learning curve for me as a dad, I had so many examples of what not to be or what I didn't want to be. Um, you know, my father battled substance abuse addictions my entire, as, as far back as I can really remember. Um, but he was also really, really intelligent. And so I could see these demons that he would battle on a daily basis as I was younger, you know, going from a heroin addiction, you know, to running, uh, you know, large companies. Um, and so it felt like he had both ends of the spectrum either figured out or confused, but I knew that I didn't want to do either. I knew that I didn't want to have all of my time monopolized by a business. And I knew that I couldn't, based on what I'd seen from him, walk down the path of addicted substances. And so regardless of the literature or the science or the, you know, the cold plunge technique, I'm just kidding. Cause I'm sure that'll trigger somebody. No. Um, but you know, regardless of all of that, you know, and all the reasons not to, to drink or smoke or do drugs, you know, I had the best example in front of me every day. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't need to go to the dare classes and, you know, have them yell at you about what nicotine did to your lungs. I saw my dad's addictions and bad choices really decimate our family. Um, and so that's, that was the quote unquote role model that I grew up with. Uh, my dad was a notorious uh, gang member and, you know, did some, some really terrible things and eventually got hum hemmed up for, you know, some pretty serious charges. Um, he passed away a couple of years ago. And so, you know, I, I have so many positive examples as I look back on the reasons that I want to be present with my kids, on the reasons that I don't want to do certain things. Um, I'll give you an example of, of one of the things that he left for me positively. You know, when you pull up to a stop sign and you kind of have a T intersection and you're going to make a right and you have oncoming traffic coming this direction, he would always tell me, no matter what, if this car here has their blinker on, you can't trust them because most people don't know where they're going in life. 
And so if you trust them to have that blinker on and you pull out in front of them and they hit you, it's going to be your fault. And, you know, you kind of a goofy thing to tell an eight-year-old boy sitting in the front seat illegally of a truck, right? You know, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I look back on, on that example and it's the reason I don't turn right on red today, especially if my kids are in the car with me, just that, you know, that half second pause. And I think if I were to zoom out some of the lessons that he probably wanted to teach me are inside that analogy as well. I think oftentimes we want to get into relationships. We want to get into business. We want to get into things in life and I'm not sure if getting into those things is good because a lot of people don't know where they're going and they might take you with them on an unknown journey. That's a good point. You got to be able to lead yourself before you can lead others. Right. So big time. Um, well, that's a, that's a great example of uh, how even, even uh, not a great role model still left you with a very good lesson. I agree. I also pause and make sure that people are not going to run through <laughs> when they have the blinker on. Yep. But, um, you know, I, I watched, Elsewhere, you're saying you can't really empathize with people unless you've been through deep water. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you remember that exact interview you were talking about that, but so it sounds like right from the get go, you were kind of <laughs> in deep water, right, with uh, the struggles of your upbringing. Um, how did that affect you, you know, from adolescence to young adulthood? Um, were you able to kind of like rise above it or did you struggle with anything? Boy, you know, I. <clears throat> I would say in, in young adulthood, you know, through my teenage years, I didn't really struggle with anything because I didn't know any different. Like, I don't want to glorify any of the way that my dad was or his, his, you know, his affiliations, but you know, there's a certain allure as a 10 year old boy, you know, when your dad is big and powerful, regardless, you know, as a 40 year old man looking back, seeing how negative those affiliations may or may not be. There's a certain allure when you're running around town and, you know, in vehicles and you're meeting with certain people and, you know, they're, it's exciting. I don't, I don't, I don't care who you are, white, black, from the rich, from the ghetto. Um, you're looking at your dad and he's doing these things and it's a really odd juxtaposition. And so that part I didn't struggle with because you know, if, if there were an issue, um, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, if I were out and about at nighttime in the city at a nightclub, um, and there was an issue, you know, he was just a text message away. And most issues were cleared up fairly quickly because of who he was. And so that was kind of quote unquote cool for a little time. Fast forward, you know, to now as a, as a, as a father, I think it's a real tragedy that he wasn't around to see me be the one that righted the ship of our family. His dad killed himself when he was very young. Man. He was put into military school at a young age. He built himself up to be something fairly big. And unfortunately, you know, the demons of yesteryear got the better of him. And so I look back now and not that I need the guidance from him or the support from him or the attaboys from him, but I definitely think, man, if he could have seen me take this trajectory in another level, if he could see me, you know, a decade and a half with Melissa, if he could see me have the time to be able to pick the kids up and take them to gymnastics and not stress about a nine to five, right. I think that, like that's a, that's a gift from God that I that's priceless that I think he would have liked to be a part of. Yeah, 
when I think it's natural too, right? As as a son, I think that's just ingrained in us. Like we want that's kind of the point, right? We're supposed to grow and kind of the mantle shifts to us. So I think, you know, even for you, it's it's also like it's just a normal desire to have. Um which then if we if we chew on that for a little bit, it's important for us to think about that as dads ourselves, right? You're you're training your replacement if you have a son. Yep. <laughs> and uh yeah, so sorry, I didn't want to cut you off there, but it's just nope. it's I think that's a normal desire for all of us to have you know we kind of want our dads to be able to to see that play out and so um no i think sorry to hear that he passed too soon yeah you know i for me it was probably a positive thing you know um uh you know as as morbid as that may sound to some who don't have really context around the situation um you know our relationship was very stressed very fractured and 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 really spicy um you know i just knew that once I had these little ones, it was my obligation to make sure that they were going to be the best humans on the planet and to make sure that I put them in that spot. Um, and he really just wanted to go back to 1985 and, you know, kind of run the streets and glorify it with them. Gotcha. Um, and so for me, it was kind of okay. I think, you know, as I, as I grow up, you know, our oldest is only 12 years old. We have one boy, Melissa and I, one boy, and he's the oldest. And so as I grew up with him, having conversations with him about, you know, who my dad was and why I say the things that I say to him or what's important for me, um, you know, comparing and contrasting with my son where I want him to end up. Um, you know, like we were talking about Brandon, you know, how we, I, I really believe Jordan Peterson says it all the time. It's your obligation to be harder on your kids than the world will ever be. And I, I think that that's the tenor that I try to take on a daily basis with the kids. Um, so for me, it was kind of a good thing. It allowed me, once he passed, it allowed me to really focus, you know, on all of that other kind of nonsense is gone. And for me, it was just game time for me to to be able to step up and, and take the family in the direction that I know it should go. Yeah. It's good that you had that that vision. I mean, that's essential. You have to you have to know your desired end state <laughs> before you start making movement, right? Um, <laughs> so speaking of movement, let's let's move a little bit forward in your story. So um, you were still relatively young in your early twenties, right? Pretty successful in terms of, uh, you know, business, yeah. um, and kind of ran into some more deep water there. I'll, I'll, I'll let you kind of decide how much or little you want to share of that. Um, <laughs> but I think that's obviously a pretty defining moment in your, your, uh, your life. Yeah. Big time. So, you know, if, if people are following along with the narrative, you know, pops was, was, was such a mess that I said, all right, these are the things I'm not going to do and I'm not going to be, and I'm not going to become, um, and I, and I use that positively, you know, I didn't, I did, didn't subscribe to any addictive substances and didn't take advantage of people. And so I went out and, you know, got a degree and, uh, started to raise money and found that I was really, really good at it. We were really successful and I had a knack for numbers and I had a knack for business. And so <clears throat> got hired and, uh, you know, by a fairly large hedge fund at the time and, even larger now and took that opportunity to the moon, I believe, you know, traveled the world and met some fantastic folks and in the process, you know, managed millions of dollars in my early twenties. And, uh, due to a licensure registration, uh, let me rewind for folks. Securities laws get kind of goofy. Um, and, and 17 years ago, they were even goofier. So in 2007, we had raised about $3 million in a particular fund 
Um, and we had closed that fund six months later and distributed the, the dollars. Three million of those dollars came in from the state of Arizona, which did not abide by federal registration. The simple way that I can put this for everybody listening without putting anybody to sleep, if you go to Oregon or if you go to Colorado, you can purchase marijuana legally. You cannot fill up a truck in Oregon and drive it to California because that's illegal, <laughs> um, regardless of whether it is illegal in Oregon or Colorado. And so that is where I found myself in the crosshairs of a state investigation versus a federal investigation. The Fed sat down with me, gave me a clean bill of health. The state sat down with me and said, we want our tax dollars. And because you failed to have a license to raise this $3 million, therefore you're guilty. And they were right. Um, and as a result, I was sentenced to two years in prison. And uh, after fighting that case for six and a half years, my wife and I were just exhausted financially, yeah. physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, you name it, you know, uh, you kind of go from young man on the mountain, you know, uh, to, to guy on the five o'clock news. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it was an experience to say the least, you know, not just the fight, you know, fighting the state for six years is exhausting. You know, we fought it from yeah. 2007 to 2013, 2012. And learned a lot, but we were sitting on the floor one night in the living room, eating a bowl of cereal. And I said, whatever's coming next can't be this bad. And so we walked in, in November to the courtroom and told, the, told my attorney, like, we'll leave it up to the judge, you know, Godspeed. Um, and so we showed up January 20th of 2012. Um, and that's when I was sentenced. And so I ended up serving 15 months. So I did 15 months in an Arizona state prison. Um, and I got lucky. Like that's the twist for everybody who's still awake. Uh, if I didn't lose you at securities laws. So I got lucky with my 15 months in prison. Um, it wasn't anything that I would have expected it to be on so many levels. But for me, the biggest thing that I took from it was that I stood in front of that judge in January of 2012 and that judge said to me that he was gonna make an example out of me. He used my pedigree against me. He used my dad, he used my degree, he used my financial status. All of these things that I should have quote known better in his opinion, he said, I'm gonna make an example out of you. And so I told my wife, he's right. He is gonna make an example out of me. I'm gonna take this story, I'm gonna turn it into my superpower. I'm going to take this pain. I'm going to turn it into my purpose. And so as I sat there for that 15 months, I didn't sit idle. Um, I wrote constantly. We started a little financial literacy book, which turned into a little financial literacy group. And I'll tell you why I did that was because so many of the guys that I met inside, their crime didn't meet their character. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I met so many individuals who, ser who were serving a sentence for car theft, okay? And as a result, they couldn't get their license or they had some DMV fines. But the reason that this guy was actually there was because he's a drug addict. He didn't steal the car to go sell it at Barrett Jackson. He stole the car because he was a drug addict. Yeah. And so his crime didn't match his character. And so while he was incarcerated, he didn't get any of the help that he actually needed because he was there as a car thief, not as a drug addict. 
And so a lot of these crimes, quote unquote, a lot, would come down to the difference of dollars and cents. If I didn't have the money, then I needed to do something ignorant to get it. Well, where did your where did your your, your financial literacy come from? Most of the time, it was non-existent to these guys. And so I thought, okay, let's start with the basics. Let's teach these guys how to save. Let's let's put them on a 30-30-30 plan. Let's teach these guys how to look up their credit score, even while incarcerated. Let's teach these guys what compound interest looks like to the positive tune. Let's teach these guys that you know are here for a while or have thousands of dollars saved up, what it might look like to put in their maximum IRA contributions all of these like kind of rudimentary steps. And while I was like doing it for them, so to speak, I really woke up one morning and was like, this was so cathartic. This was so therapeutic. Yeah. For me. Well, you had purpose again, right? You were able to use your gifts for good. Had purpose. And it was like hundreds of individuals on a daily and weekly basis. And so we were talking about like gifts that were given to me, you know, from God that were now being displayed here in a prison yard. Hilarious. And it felt like I was free. And so I just, it just kind of compounded. And so that was my time while I was incarcerated. And so that's why I tell people I got lucky. Like, I really believe that I found a gift of mine while incarcerated. And I really believe that I was able to kind of change the world a little bit based yeah. on that time I spent inside. That's awesome. So uh, two quick clarifying questions. Uh, the first is, uh, when, when did you meet your wife? How long had you been married before this all happened? Um, and I have a quick follow-up to that after, after yeah, that. we were only married a few, a uh, couple, few years, three years. Wow. Okay. So still relatively newly wed. And then all this hits you. And I mean, I can only imagine how stressful, uh, and difficult it was oh. know, just to stay together, battling the state, let alone getting convicted <laughs> to, oh, to go man. in. Unbelievable. Can, can you dive in just a little bit to like how you guys weather that storm together? Oh yeah. It was hell for everybody listening. There's no, there's no way for me to sugarcoat it. Like, like you got to go to the pit for, for anybody who is listening. My, my greatest advice for you is like, if you're going through something and you feel lonely and you feel sick and you feel depressed and you feel like your routine is off and you feel, feel, feel you're right about all of it, but you got to go to the pit with it. You've got to go to the depths of hell and figure out why in the world you're going through in something like this. And for her and I, I just knew I was built for this. And I would just continue to tell her that she's a special soul. She's very calm, very quiet, very cerebral, very intelligent, doesn't panic, doesn't stress, doesn't have anxiety. And so that was a really a, a blessing in our relationship to begin with. But it was always my quiet as I would drive around town with my top down, just crying around town. Like, why am I going through this before I would get home and pretend I had it all together? My only answer, my only conversation or negotiation, if you will, with God was always, if something's going to happen to the family, just make sure it's all on me. Taking accountability. That, I like that. That was just the one thing that kept me going. Like yeah. if you need a limb, if you need a, if you need a kidney, like holler at your boy, like don't, <laughs> don't take it from our four-year-old. Like, you know, like just trust me, I can handle this. I got shoulders for this. I'm built for this. And so that was just what I kept telling her for years and years and years and years is like, I'm built for this. And so you were, you were already a father before the going? No, in. no, thank, no, thank goodness. You know, that okay. was, if there's a, an upside to it, silver lining. <laughs> um, yeah, silver lining. No, luckily 
So it was a situation for us where it was just, you know, the two of us going through it. She was going through school. You know, I was fighting the world. And, you know, it, it, I just kept telling her over and over, you know, I'm built for this. It's going to be fine. Whatever comes out of this, I'll be okay. And that's what I told her in the courtroom. You know, you go back to January of that date, you know, uh, to get from for a first time offender to be remanded immediately, especially when they're nonviolent, is almost unheard of. Um, especially in a case of this magnitude, this dollar amount, white collar. Normally, they'd give you some time to get your affairs in order. Um, but for me, you know, it was boom, immediate sentencing. First time I was ever taken into handcuffs. It's kind of the other thing that's really confusing for probably a lot of people listening. You know, you're, you're talking from 2006 to 2012. At no point in time was I ever arrested. No point in time was I ever read my Miranda rights. It's wild. And it's pretty wild to really conceive, right? Because everything... Everything that we're either told or we're conditioned to believe is, hey, you know, you get a knock on the door or, hey, the police officer pulls you over and it's, you know, these are the things you did wrong and here's what's going to happen. Right. But for me, you know, I was delivered a thesaurus of, you know, all of the securities laws and how I violated them. And then it just became a, a tug of war behind the scenes with, between my attorneys in the state. One attorney led to two attorneys, two attorneys led to three attorneys, you know, it just was like compounding legal fees for years. And it was just this tug of war back and forth. Wow. And, you know, those are things that when you look back or when you tell people about the case, you know, it's, it, it's hard to really put it into, into context because what did you do? wrong? If you would have done something wrong, you should have been arrested. If you'd done something wrong, you should have been told about it. But this was really like that gray area of securities violations that, you know, they use the loophole. Yeah, I think predominantly based on my background, my upbringing, my youth and my dad and et cetera. But whatever. I'm not going to skirt those. I did it. It was me. I, you know, dead to rights. And so, you know, when I would tell that story to my wife, like, we're going to be okay. And so when I came back on the other side of it, boy, I'll tell you what, all the business adventures that we had, I knew exactly which partners that I wanted to do business with in the future. So many people stopped paying Melissa while I was incarcerated, like I was going to be gone for 100 years. You know, like 15 months comes in the blink of an eye. If you want to take advantage of my wife while, we're, while I'm inside, it's going to be ugly when I'm out. And so there was a lot of things that we learned. We learned which family members we could count on, which friends we could count on. You know, you really learned a lot about ourselves, our relationship. When you're able to, you know, have a phone call a day for 20 minutes and, and write our relationship via letters. She still has the notebook of it. Like we became so much more close while I was inside. And I used that, you know, in our, our time spent together on Saturdays and Sundays when she would come down for visitation. None of it was frivolous. There was no cell phones. There was no email. There was no nothing. It was quite literally pouring into one another, walking outside the prison gates, talking about, um, and, and I would tell her, this is what life is going to look like. I had this blueprinted. This is how we're going to get back into the real estate game. This is what I'm going to do with my story. There's going to be times when I'm on stage and I want all the kids in front, front row with you. Like I manifested this start to finish. And so that drove me while I was incarcerated to make sure that when I got out, like I hit the gate running with a blueprint and I wasn't going to waste any time. I love it, man. Yeah. I think you had something. Yeah. You, you mentioned purpose quite a few times and you know, you had such an epical event that just kind of changed the course of your life. Right. So in the words of, of Travis, what's the power of purpose and how do you find it? Jeez Louise. It's a deep question, my man. Welcome to the Present Fathers Podcast. <laughs> it's been fun, everybody. Super neat. Boy, I think, how do I find my purpose? So I think, 
everybody on this planet has a unique purpose. And that's a, that's a, that's a thing that everybody should say. But I think there's a subset of people that are out there that actually believe that they're doing something today that doesn't serve them. I think there's a lot of people who would tell you, I want a better job. I want a better car. I want a better body. I think those are the masses. But I think the small percentage of people who are really, 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 really looking for their purpose, I think those people have to be comfortable being totally unique. The vast majority of folks live paycheck to paycheck with a job they hate. And so when you go out and you tell people that you're going to set the world ablaze with a new idea or a new business, you have to be prepared to get beaten down. And if you go out there and you post on social media about how much you're in love with another human, and then you spend time with that human ad nauseum, and you make sure you pour into that human, and you make sure you date that human and love that human and talk life into that human, most people don't want to be with their partner, so you're going to have to be prepared to get beat down. And so I think if I was talking to those people about finding their purpose, I would caution them to make sure that they're prepared to get beat down. And I don't want to end on that negative note because I can tell you as somebody who has never been more in love after 15 years, who's never had more money after 15 years, who's never had more time after 15 years, I've also never experienced more negativity every time I put those tenants into the world. Hmm. It's interesting. It's like, it's paradoxical for sure. You know? Right. Like, there's, there's a certain degree of suffering that has to occur for anybody to, in my opinion, to find, to find true purpose and to find the value of that purpose. Right. So I would, yeah. I would agree with you and I would build upon it. Which part of life that is worth living is not about suffering. Hmm. If we're really to extract that slowly, but gently, Childbirth is exactly that. Waking up as the four of us do every day and the mental to-do list that starts before all of the dollars, before all of the people that we may be accountable to or for. Is there a little one in your bed? Was your night's sleep terrible because of that little one? Probably. If you're in my household, four out of five nights a week is the answer is yes. If we're being That's totally candid, right? Yeah. <laughs> totally, right? Like, yeah. I got a newborn. Trust me. <laughs> oh yeah, you're yeah. in the thing at home. Justin's like, what's I'm sleep? in the gauntlet, brother. But you got to. What does like, that word sleep mean? Yeah, I mean, you you have to put it in perspective. I mean, yep. At the end of the day, you have to feel the the horrible things in order to yeah. feel the good in a, in a in a way that makes it worth it. That's you know it, I mean? bro. But I think, yes, 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 yes. And I don't want to, I don't want to jump over that and, and, and not acknowledge that. I said this, I said this the other day and I haven't really unpacked it. So we're going to Brandon. I think a lot of individuals, and I said, guys, 
So I'm going to say guys, cause it's the, this is the people who, I think a lot of guys could have something good and perhaps even great, but I see so many of them cut corners for the instant gratification of the gram. Yep. And to Justin's point, it's 12 months of just nurturing that newborn. There is no way around it other than nurturing the newborn. And if the newborn is 3 p.m. or 3 a.m., you're nurturing the new, like, but that's the suffering. And then that's the beautiful part of it. And I think that so many guys who, who, who want to build a business, who want to build a lasting relationship, they could have something good, perhaps even great. But the instant gratification eats us alive. We want to six-minute abs the world instead of taking the time to really lay the foundation and build something epic. I think that is where we are at. If I could put us into a very tight lens and draw a lot of assumptions, Brandon, I think that's where we are at as men. We're, we're rarely worried on the fourth week of December about setting up for Q1. Most of us are worried about how big that credit card bill is going to be from Christmas. Rarely are we set up. I can tell Justin's in shape. Rarely are we set up in by May to hit the pool. Right? Now we're all of a sudden under the gun and we're creating all the excuses not to go to the theme park, not to go to the pool, not because we're not confident in our skin. And I tell these guys this, tell me the last name of an individual whose physique you saw at the pool that you looked up and remembered. You can't. And so you're not creating something great because you're cutting corners. And so I think when you start to look at these pillars of life, mental, physical, emotional, financial, spiritual, sexual, that I like to talk about, we like to cut corners. We like to half-ass date nights with the wife. We like to make it three minutes of sex because it's about us instead of creating a 90-minute experience to make sure that it's going to be an experience. We do these things as men, and I believe, totally open to being wrong, a vast majority of it comes from this thing that tells us it has to be instantly gratified or else it's not worthwhile. Yep. Well, instant gratification is an empty thing. It's an empty vessel. It doesn't, can't, it doesn't contain anything. Slow gratitude is something that builds over time. And I could personally say um, my wife, her best uh, best friend, and her big brother, uh, or big as they call him in, uh, in school, uh, was a gentleman who he and his wife lost their four-year-old son to cancer. And it was the most brutal thing I've ever witnessed someone go through. But I'll tell you what, I've never seen a family love each other more than the way they loved on him because... There were days where he was bleeding from different orifices and they were just watching him waste away. And then there's days where he's laughing and just hopeful and they all shared in that, you know what I mean? And so I call it a slow gratitude because uh, you go through so much to get 
to where you actually are grateful. And it's, it's, it's something that a lot of people just don't appreciate. It's like you said, everyone wants the instant gratification, but it's, it's empty, you know? And I, I think that's so hard for, for people to grasp, especially us as men and as fathers, we have to take the slow game. We can't take the instant. I'm going to feel good about everything because it's just not going to feel good. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Travis, yeah. Do, you have, do you have any thoughts on like, so I, I have a theory that, I, you know, we live in like the most comfortable era of human beings ever, right? Yeah. Air, air conditioning, got heat when you want it. Like we have everything whenever we want it. Even if you're living, you know, with meager means, you still live more comfortably than most humans ever did. Right. If you live in America. Yeah. Totally. Do you think this obsession with comfort is where a lot of that wanting to just cut corners comes from, or is it something else? I think obsession with comfort has a lot to do with it. I also think that a lot of these, I, I think that there's far fewer role models from a foundational perspective. And there's far more, uh, I call them furus with an F like a fake guru. There's far more of those clowns out there that are telling you the, 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 the TRT plus the HRT equals the Lambo divided by there's so much more social proof existing, especially for our younger generations. Like the four of us probably in the same age range within a few years, we can kind of snuff out the goofy uh, people, I'll say. Yeah, the That's snake oil salesman. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and so, but I think the younger generation is really being built on a world of six minute YouTube infomercials. And I think that's where a lot of it gets scary. There's a ton of social proof that says um, everybody has to accept me. I don't have to be good at anything. Um, there's a lot of social proof around the inability to really set yourself apart. Because if I set myself apart, then I'm going to be different. And if, and if different right now, different equals bad. And there's a lot of people over here that are in this camp that are doing a lot of these things. And they might be goofy or they might be crazy or they might be dumb but they're getting attention and it's working. And I think that is, I, I think you have a little bit of the, the comfortability factor, but I think you have a lot of social proof that tells people it's really simple to be a snake oil salesman. And it's very difficult to build something that has a great benefit to the world. Hey there, we hope you're enjoying this episode of the Present Fathers Podcast. Our mission is to reach as many men as possible and equip them to be excellent family leaders. We believe that by inspiring and equipping men, we can change bloodlines and positively impact our culture. You can join us on this mission and partner with us today by doing one of two things. First, go to your favorite podcast platform, whether that's YouTube videos or Apple or Spotify, Google, etc., and leave us a review. The way the algorithm works is that it really values reviews and this helps promote our stories to get them out to more people. The second way you can help is by sharing your favorite episodes with friends and family. Help us get the word out so that we can make a difference in our culture. Thank you for watching and we hope that you join us in our mission to change lives. So quick follow-up to that. What do you do then specifically with your kids to insulate them from <laughs> biting on that? false promise oh man each one of ours is different um not sure how many little ones you guys have but with four each obviously each personality is different and so with our with, with our boy um i i use windshield time uh 
very intelligently, I believe. I use it purposefully. I'll use that word instead of intelligently. Um, we don't listen to the radio. All we listen to are podcasts. And I'll, I'll rotate, you know, through my, my handful of top five. If I and, and any time that we're in the vehicle, he and I, we talk about those types of conversations. That's the first thing. I'm not going to put, you know, a Nicki Minaj tape on and have him have her talk about her downstairs and every he's, he's going to get that at school. Right. He doesn't need to get it from me in the, in the car. So when we're in the vehicle, our, our time is spent intentionally pouring into him as much as I can with good stuff. Um, second thing to that is I'm constantly teaching him about the outcomes of a profession. Let me give you an example. He likes this gal that cuts his hair in a certain way, right? And so every time I take him to the gal, I have the same conversation with him because he's 12 and they usually retain, what is it, like 6% of anything that a dad says? No, I'm kidding. Um, six might be, six might be generous. It's too generous. Yeah. Right. Three. (laughs) Right. And so I tell him this, so this is the conversation we have about the hair girl. This hair girl is exceptional at her job, which is why we go to her, which is why you like her. But guess when we go and see her Friday night, Saturday morning, Sunday afternoon, none of these things are conducive to you being the guy that you want to be at home as a dad. And so I think what's, and, and, and I use that just an example, but I don't want to, you know, drag on anybody that's out there cutting hair and killing it. I love it. But my point in that is a lot of these kids don't have the guidance in school. They just go, hey, what do you want to be? Oh, I want to be a lawyer. Awesome. It doesn't align with their core values. It doesn't align with their belief system. It doesn't align with who they want to become. And so while you might be a great trial attorney, you have to understand that most of my friends that are trial attorneys are on their third marriage. And so you have to understand that if you want to go into real estate and you want to be the greatest realtor on the planet and you want to sell the most high-end stuff down in Laguna Beach, I'm all for it. You're going to show houses every single weekend and every single night. So just don't be the guy who's pissed off at 42 when you haven't had dinner at home in a decade. And so I have a ton of professional conversations with my son about what does this actually look like? What is it? What is a nurse's skill? What is a doctor's skill? What is a teacher's? What does this actually look like? What aligns with you and where you want to go? I'm okay with whatever you want to do. I just want to make sure you don't get into something and then you're pissed off at 35, like most of my friends, and they've got this fat W-2 and they can't wait for Friday at 5.30 p.m. Like that to me is not a life. So I have a ton of professional conversations with our son. Our oldest daughter, the other two are just babies, so they don't really count. But nonetheless, I put into them. Our our oldest daughter, Kennedy, she is, boy, she's wild. Um, i I (laughs) tell you a funny story. I was telling the other night when we all went out for New Year's Eve. Um, She just turned eight. And so about a year and a half ago, I get home from the gym. It's like 6 a.m. And she's sitting at the the bar. And she's like, all right, check it out, old man. Like, how do I get money out of my retirement account? And I was like, oh, here we go. And so I said, well, you know, we have two different accounts. One's retirement, one's banking. And so retirement serves this purpose. Banking serves that purpose. We get money in retirement this way. We get money in banking this way. She comes home from school, kicks open my office door. All right, old man, I need you to print 18 of these flyers. I just started a dog walking business. And so now she's going door to door to get the money that she wanted to raise that she was asking for the retirement, right? And so I'm like, all right, here we go. So I got, she goes door to door. She raises the money, all $18 for her little thing that she wanted on Amazon or whatever. Comes back in and I'm like, all right, you want to buy it? She's like, heck no, not with my money. 
I was like, and I'm winning the game of life. Uh, that's great. So with, with her, I have a ton of conversations about execution. I think girls in today's world need to understand that they can be lions and they can be lovers. And I think that they need to know that they need to execute. Like, don't tell me that there's this disparity between men and women. I, I don't buy into that nonsense. As so long as you have a plan and you execute on it, you're going to win. Especially if you have a little bit of personality and you're attractive in this world. Like, good gracious. Like, if we're just being super honest with each other, if you went to the car dealership and there was a good-looking girl and a goofy-looking guy and they both gave you the same level of service, she would be your pick all day long. And so I try to ingrain this into Kennedy. Like, so long as you execute, you will dominate because nobody, I use that loosely, very few people want to execute. Everybody wants a business. Nobody wants to start. Everybody wants to retire. Nobody wants to invest. Everybody wants to lose weight. Nobody at the gym lifting heavy shit. It's like you have to execute. And if you do, I promise that you'll win. And so I push Kennedy so hard on the execution because she's a dreamer. She's a, she's a typical, what I call a little girl. She's dreams and it's always in pinks and purples and daisies and glitters and unicorns, which is lovely. But I have to like force to her, like, you got to keep going. You got to execute. What is it now? And so those are the different conversations that we have with them. My son won't have a, a pro Brock won't have a problem executing. I just want to make sure he has the information at his fingertips to say, oh, if I choose this profession, what does this actually look like on a day to day? Yeah. And I don't think like I think the days of like the old internships, we should bring those back like and really have kids understand what they're getting themselves into and then really have dialogue. Because how many how many of our friends do we know that may have a great job, but they have a terrible working relationship with their with their spouse? Or they have a terrible work-life balance. Or they're always the one that have like a great W-2, but they're always 60 pounds overweight because they have a great W-2, right? Or they're 60 pounds underweight because they're only eating ramen because they don't have a W-2, right? But it's like, I really wish that that dialogue existed, especially with boys and men, to say like, this is as, as the next generation, if you want to spend time like I do, if you want to wake up at 8 a.m., if you want to be here at 5 p.m., if, 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 You've got to wrap some context around the life that you are trying to create. Well, it sounds like you, uh, you made the best of your time, um, you know, when you were incarcerated, but what, I guess what skill set or what emotion did you kind of let drive you as soon as you were released so that you could get where you are today? Cause I know us as men, you know, they say we're not very emotional creatures, but that's not true there's always something driving us and there's usually an emotion behind it. So I'm just curious, what was yours? Man, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what it was. I had this quote, you know, from, from Frederick Nietzsche and then I wrote and it said, he who has a why can, uh, he who has a why to live can endure almost any how. He who has a why to live can endure almost any how. And inside incarcerated, there was two types of prisoners and two types of, of correctional officers, the victims and the victors. The ones who had lost all the hope and all the faith in their future, humanity, themselves, all that other stuff. Sometimes it was hard to distinguish who was a prisoner and who was a worker, to be totally honest with you. I met so many correctional officers that would tell me, Travis, I've served more time in prison than any of these guys ever will. Because I'm here 10 hours a day, 60 hours a week, times 25, right? You follow the math. And so for me, that seed of adversity had to have a greater benefit. It had to. 
it, there was no way in the world that I was going to let this adversity like water me down or drain me or, or be the, the, the thing that like killed my tree. I knew for a fact this seed of adversity that I went through had to have a greater benefit to me. I can't put the milk back in the bottle. Felon, it's, it's nothing more than a noun, ladies and gentlemen. You cannot change the definition of a noun, but if I put an adjective in front of it, now I can change the perspective. And so all of those things to me was like, I have to change this narrative by changing the perspective of the way everyone's going to look at me. And I have to do it inside myself or else I, I just, I can't sell something I don't believe in. And so while I was in prison, I would constantly contrast where I was and where I was going to be. And I think this is a lacking skill for a lot of people. Like I saw it yesterday on Instagram, everybody's got a vision board all of a sudden, right? But I really, really, really like checking in with yourself every six to seven days. Like, where are you and where are you going to be? Where are you and where are you going to be? Your environment, right? Whether it's a six by nine cell or not, your environment never defines you, but it gives you that opportunity to define yourself. And that's where I wanted to show up. What can I become instead of looking at what was I up against? What, where did I come from? Because I can't change that situation. And so, you know, your friends who sound like they just absolutely dominated this horrible thing called cancer, you know, from a family perspective, you can't unring that bell for them. You can't bring that little one back. You can't put my milk back in the bottle. You can't get my 15 months back. But we always have that choice. And it sounds like your friends did this between the stimulus and the response. That to me is where most people lag. If I'm going to come out of this prison gate and I remember it clear as day, as long as I will ever live, I sat in that chain link fence and I thought, I've got this stupid card in my hand, I had $50 on it. My wife was on the other side, so it didn't worry, but I had this dumb Visa card, debit card. And I thought there is no way in the world that I'm not gonna turn this mess into a message. Period, end of story. And I want to make sure that if anybody's grabbing anything from this, whether it's how do I parent my little ones? How do I look at myself in the mirror? How do I become a better A, B, or C, father, dad, husband, whatever, spouse? You have to change yourself to change the world. And I can't go back. I can't go back to the scars. I can't go back to the sadness. I can't go back. I can't do any of that. So why do we focus on it? We can't. You have the power to create the meaning from any circumstance, and you have to do that today. And that's what kept me going while I was inside. And when I hit the ground, I've got a, I've got a ginormous, as you can probably tell by this interview, I get fired up. I got a ginormous chip on my shoulder for being honest with everybody. It's gigantic. You took 15 months from me. I'm never going to get it back. So I feel like I'm 17,000 hours behind for most guys my age. And then I have to work so much harder because I already have the stigma behind me. Forget about the New York Times. Forget about the Yahoo. Forget about the Forbes. Forget about all that crap. At the end of the day, I'm a convicted felon. I have to work 10 times harder in order to be a walk-on. And that's the way I treat my life every single day. You're just not going to outwork me. Not as a dad, not as a husband, definitely not as a business owner. Love it. It's kind Cheer of funny, right? Like if, yeah, I was going to say, it's almost funny. It's like, because you are, because, like you said, you have to be yeah. the adjective with it, but because you have that stacked against you, it's like, what other option do you have than to make it happen? You know, and, and it's, back to the deep water thing you know it's interesting right because it's kind of this this strange dichotomy where we want to create good uh you know thriving environments for our children but there is a point too where it's like they're gonna have to face some adversity to to become good adults and so like 
there's this constant dilemma of like, well, how much is too much and what do I shield them from and what do I don't? And, and, um, you know, like it, whether it's anything professional, you know, family leadership in sports, whatever, like until you've had something really punchy in the mouth, <laughs> you can't really have that perspective that you need, you know? And so I guess with everything you've been through and, and then on the success on the back end of it, how do you balance that struggle? Um, and it sounds like with your son, you're very intentional about, you know, the vision, but there's more to it than just that. I think, um, can you expand upon like what, what you don't shield them from intentionally to huh. prepare them? <clears throat> Man, I don't. And, and my wife would giggle at this, this response because she knows it's true. I don't, I don't shield them from anything. Um, I take every single phone call that I take on speakerphone. Um, good and bad, right and wrong. I actually had my eight-year-old tell me she saw somebody calling and she said, can you tell him not to swear? I said, all right. Um, I believe, man, boy, the kid thing, it is such a hard, it's so hard to put this into context for a lot of people. Like, because parenting is such a one-on-one -on -one sport, like to tell you that this is what's right for all children or whatever. I can, I can tell you what's worked for, for me personally. Yeah. And that is, that's a great distinction. What's worked for you. Yeah. Take, like, take it or leave it. That's the, like, that's always the tough part. Every child is so different. And I think as parents, we have so much. I call it mom guilt because I'm not sure us dads get guilty until they're like older and we're like, oh shit, we failed. But I, I, there's like a lot of mom guilt when they're young. Like, oh, she's not walking by 13 months and this book said I'm a failure. Anyhow. And so I, I think for, for me personally, what has worked is to make sure that I talk. So like at our dinner table, my conversation is who made you laugh today? What made you think today? And what made you sad today? And so I, I actually, Brandon will love this, uh, from my one-on-one -on -one time with old JP. We call him JP because we're close to him. They don't really know him. You and I know him, right, Brandon? Anyhow. So uh, my one-on-one -on -one time with Jordan, he, he said to me, this was a question, bro. This you, you like to go deep? Check this one out with your wife next time. This is what he says to me. He says, sit next to your wife once a week and ask this question. Sweetheart, what thoughts dragged you to the depths of hell today? He said, and then just listen. And he said, and then if you're a exceptional husband, four days later, when you take her on that date night, your discourse will be building her up from the things that dragged her to hell four days ago. And that's brilliant. Right? And so I, I, like, I'll sit next to my wife and she knows it's coming. You know, we have our quiet time at night. Our kids go to bed by eight. She's diligent. And so I'm like, all right, what dragged you to, you know, now I've said it for two years and she's like, you're funny. <laughs> but I believe like that intentionality, that's, that's some deep nonsense right there. Yep. It's, it's armor right? building. I call it armor building. So one of the two things that my wife and I do, we, we play high low with our kids, but high low with each other, Right. What was your high of the day? What was your low? Whatever the low is, we pray over it for each other. Mm -hmm. And then we think about how we can improve that for that person. And like we hold each other accountable. So like one of the kids is stressing her out, right? And she starts, uh, you know, losing her cool or emotional regulation. I'll say, hey, honey, just take a breath. I'll, I'll tag in, right? And like I prevent her from being pulled down, 
Mm. Right. And so kind of casting that rope to help keep her from going down to those depths. That's, I think that's something else. That's, that's a key element to making a really strong marriage. Cause like, like you said, JP says that you need at least a base 90 minutes of maintenance conversation with your wife a week to just to maintain Hey, Brandon, you got muted somehow. Uh-oh. Uh, it's a cat. You're saying just to maintain. Just to maintain, yeah, yeah. Just to maintain, it was 90 minutes. But, you know, if yes. you want an actual, real healthy, thriving marriage, you need more than that. And you need to be more intentional about it. Like, you know, 150 plus minutes, you know, so. And to your point, if we're, we're talking about 90 minutes to maintain, what's the divorce rate in America? It's, it's 50%-ish, right? Like At yeah. least. Yeah. Right. And so... I mean, we all know people, we all know people, all of our friends that are hanging out by a thread. Like how much, of, like, is that 90 minutes intentional or is that 90 minutes nonsensical? Right? Like we could, we could take that even in, in, into deeper. But I think, I think to go back to one of George's questions, because it just popped in my mind. One of the other things, and I'm sure y'all do this as well, but like, I am intentional about being affectionate to my wife in front of my children, our children. And I, up until probably last year, we had somebody who like stalked us at Target. No, I'm just kidding, but it really happened. And they were like, hey, we knew it was you because you guys were holding hands. And those little things, right? Whether it's the little butt grabs in the kitchen at the sink, whether it's the constant like, hey, you look fantastic. Like I want to make sure that my girls hear and see the love, the affection, the affirmations that is given to their mother, because then they're going to know, hey, something's missing here, right? Oh, my dad used to say these. My dad used to do these things. My dad, and they're going to know that that's a need in their relationship, hopefully. Yeah, yeah you're, you're conditioning them to what they should expect. You're building yes. standards. And yeah. that actually leads to a question. I, I we were, the conversation got away from us, um, but Sorry. I wanted to go back to um, when you were talking about, you know, with your son, how, how the, the specific conversations you're having about his, his professional choice, right? And the, the implications that's going to have. Are you planning to have the, the inverse type of conversation with your daughters about, hey, when you're selecting a man, like you, you also need to think about the implications about what his job is going to be because, you know, yeah, if he's in real estate, you know, in Miami showing houses every weekend, guess where he's not with you, you know? So I don't, are you, is that your plan or? It's actually already happened. And my, so okay. our, our little eight-year-old Kennedy, she's a spitfire. I'll tell you what, she still can't figure out why she needs a man to pay for her life. Um, but she's a different breed. She, she will actually come to, to, come to my wife, Melissa, and say, like, this is just crap. Why do I have to go to school? Why can't I go to work with dad? She's eight. Like, if I tell her, hey, I got to go, I got to go to the bank and, and notarize these five houses, closings, or you can go to your friend's house. She's like, we can go to the bank. She's just like a different little girl. She's different in, in the most kind, loving, fantastic human way. She's just built differently. And so, you know, my wife is like, oh, this is this is because of you. Like you've drug her around for the last eight years. Like she's seen this. And so like, you know, <clears throat> I laugh, but like even tonight at, at, at dinner, we were joking about it. And she still is like, well, like, why would a guy pay for me? dad's going to pay for me. And then I'm just going to take over something. And so she like kind of says that off the cuff, but it's so interesting that it's already like in her tiny little eight year old brain. She'll just have the keys to the kingdom. Right. <laughs> so just like, it warms my heart in a way. 
you know, to go, okay, not only does she, she want to take over something, but she wants to work for it. But at the same time, I'm like, Godspeed to the young man that tries to get a ring on that finger. I mean, mission accomplished then, I guess, right? Yeah. <laughs> One out of three. We'll see. I'll, I'll keep yeah. you all posted in the next 15, 16 I, years. I guess I'm curious on if you've thought ahead with your younger daughters on when they're getting to the age of having those types of discussions. Yeah, for sure. Assuming their personalities are different, I assume they would be. I think so. I think they're all going to be a little bit different. You know, our two youngest at the moment are pretty close, not only in terms of age, but also in terms of personality. And those two are my little cuddle bugs. They're my little love bugs. They um, have adopted that personality from the beginning. They would, they would, they would prefer to be with us, you know, versus, versus, you know, their friends. And they're not afraid to be affectionate. Sometimes a little, you know, my two-year-old, she's, we call her a little kissy face because she just won't stop. And so, you know, when you're at dinner at Roots, Chris, you're like, okay, it's awkward now, babe. Like, you know, time out. Dad needs a little, dad needs a little few minutes. All right. Okay. We'll do it when we get home. But she's, she is just such an affectionate little bug. And I'm hopeful that that's because that's the way that we've been reared in just that open conversation and dialogue. I talk about our wins and our losses, you know, I mean, even tonight at dinner, the kids don't know dollar amounts. They don't understand anything. They just think it's all big. And so I say, Hey, here's where we ended the year in real estate. Here's what, you know, my partner and I plan on doing this month in real estate. And I want to constantly have dialogue with them about wins and losses, personally, professionally, dynamically. I want to make sure that they understand, like, this is how the world actually operates. Like you don't just get a 12 year degree and like this piece of crappy paper. And then like all of a sudden things are handed to you and it's simpler at that point. I really want them to be like, no, no, no. And I tell them all the time, Hey, it's 16. Like you got to clock in at 16. You're on the clock. I'll put you in on one of the businesses. Like it's yours. You can make as much money as you want. That's amazing. Yeah. I worked in a warehouse when I was 16. So that's <laughs> <laughs> sounds like you're setting them up for a, a better uh, understanding of how the business actually operates as opposed to just doing the labor. Uh, I really want them to understand that like I had this talk with one of my buddies today. Like if you won the lottery, here's a question for you guys. If you won the lottery, do you take the lump sum or do you take double the money over the 20 years? Personally, Depends I on what you're saving for. Are you trying to create generational wealth? Or are you trying to create your own wealth? Okay. That's just, no, I think, so I think, no, you take if it you over long term from, to, to avoid. No, I think if you know how to invest, you know how to invest it, right? Right. You take the lump sum right away and then immediately have your money start working for you. Right. I take the lump sum because I could be dead in two years. <laughs> there you go. That's my thought Boom. process. There you go. Like that, I, I overcomplicated that one. <laughs> I just, I mean, I, I like, it's just not guaranteed. And so I really, you know, obviously we get to 78 magical birthdays here as white males in North America. You know, that's kind of like our timeline of, you know, when red meat decides to kill us or Chick-fil-A or whatever, but <laughs> that's the Lord. You know, like, <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. More butter. That's Jordan. I am no. Jack's colon. I get cancer. Jack dies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so true. But like we get those 78 birthdays. And so like, like what if I don't get 78, you know, I mean, your friends, you know, God bless the little one, like my sister, you know, we, she yeah. had cancer. She lost the little one. And, so it's like I kind of run around with this. Not only do I have this monster chip on my shoulder for the time that I lost, but I really don't think that it's guaranteed. And so like I try to pack it all into one day. I try to pack it all into one week, one month, one year and like pour into these kids constantly because I know that they're getting torn apart. They're getting made fun of at school for their hair, their nails, their shoes, their clothes, their leggings, their jeans. Their, and it doesn't even matter. Like 
if you pull up in a six-figure sports car, people make fun of you. If you're our kids, if you pull up in a $10,000, you know, Volkswagen bug with ripped seats, people make fun of you. It's like, and I try to tell the kids, I would just rather be the first guy. Like, this is just the way of the world. We know how this works. You know, you go to, you, people look at you funny, like, hey, you know, I'm trying to change some things up in my life. So I'm cutting back a little bit of portion here, adding a little 30 minutes of exercise, taking my, taking my calls while I'm walking, make sure I get my steps in. People are like, you've lost your mind. But then everybody wants to meet at the bar you know, and have four shots of tequila, like that's super normal. So we live in this world where like upside down is right side up and black is white. And so I just try to pour into these kids on a daily basis, like ignore the noise, ignore the goofballs. You can still be a ringmaster, but you still need clowns in your circus. Don't ostracize everybody. Just put them in their rightful place. And that like that to me is how I teach these kids how to operate in school, in business. You got to have clowns in your circus. You can still be a ringmaster. Here you go. And so that's what I like. That's what I teach to the kids as much and as often as I can. And while you're a ringmaster, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Sometimes a lion eats you. You know, Siegfried and Roy, God bless. Sometimes a lion eats you. Sometimes you get out of it a okay. But at the end of the day, like you got to be a ringmaster and you got to make sure that everything's in control and you need all these people in order to play the game. Yeah, it's uh, if you want uncommon results, you have to do uncommon work. Mm -hmm. all day long all day long but i think again to beat the drum that we've already beaten that's where the uncommon suffering comes in to actually yeah. get the gratitude that's where the uncommon results come in in order to get the actual physique that's where the uncommon yeah. results come in to actually get the money in the bank we all does all is a relative word majority of us guys desire those things we want to fall in love with somebody every night we want to have great sex a couple times a week we want to have more money in the bank than we worried about. We want to look good and feel good in the mirror, in the shower, in the jeans. All of those things require a boatload of suffering and work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like you got to choose your heart, right? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, we could, we could beat hard. that all. We could talk about that all night. But uh, I, w I wanted to ask you, what's, what's something else from your perspective that you think most dads probably aren't doing that they need to be doing. It could be tactical or strategic. Vulnerability. Vulnerability. Um, I know it's like, oh, I just say it and shut up. No. Um, I believe. Let me give an example. Our son walks our daughter outside to go to her friend's house. He's going too fast because he wants to get back to doing what he was doing. She trips, she falls, she bloodies her knee. She comes back in crying. And the conversation I have with our son is that this is your fault. I'm not mad. I'm not screaming. I'm not degrading you. It was your responsibility to get your sister there safely. And when you walk out of that front door, this is on you. That vulnerability in order to be a dad to set back and say, I don't need to scream. I don't need to yell. I don't need to get loud. I don't need to threaten. I see too many of these clowns and chilies every day screaming at everybody and it doesn't do anybody any good. Having the vulnerability to sit down with our boys and say, hey, the same way when I pull out of this garage and you're in my car, I make sure that the A, that, that the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted and the seatbelts are on and da, 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 da. This is my responsibility to get you home safe. It's your responsibility. That vulnerable moment, I don't think we as dads are having enough of those, first and foremost. On top of that, I don't think we as dads 
are being vulnerable enough with our spouses about what we are struggling with. I think that masculinity has been eroded from the far left, from the far right, from the Bud Light. It's been eroded. Thanks, Justin. I appreciate you. And so I really believe that like sitting down with our spouse and saying, I feel like I'm not going to hit my sales quota this year. And if I don't, I've attached so much of my identity to that, that it makes me feel incompetent. I, I feel like I'm going to the gym four or five days a week and I just can't get rid of my belly fat. And that makes me feel like you're not going to want to have sex with me. I feel like at this point in my life, I've looked up on Yahoo tables. I should have more money saved or more money on my W-2 and I don't. And that makes me feel less than as a provider. Having those conversations, those will bring you to tears if you're really honest about them. And having a spouse that's connected next to you that's vulnerable and says, you know what? These are valid concerns and, and let's talk about them and figure out a way around them or through them. I think that's the second example. I think the third example Vulnerability in the world as other guys. I think far too often, like I like to go back to the locker room examples, the camaraderie. Like I fully expect everybody, you know, David Waldy is a prime example of this. He's a great, you probably all got a text message two days ago, right? Individualized, you know, Merry, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, this. Here's the three There's reasons. Text messages. <laughs> He's such a good example to me of like that authenticity with other men. And so for me, I go back to like that locker room camaraderie of like, are we really rooting for our friends to win? Regardless of whether we're like on that winning team or not. Like, do we really want our friend at Amco Transmission to hit $2 million next year? Because he did one four this year. Are we really rooting for him? Or are we like, eh, that might make me feel less than because I didn't do 1.4 this year. That vulnerability as dudes, as men, to be able to say, yo, man, like no homo or anything, but like I saw you, you're killing it. It looks like you're down 15 pounds and I love it. Like we don't really get that often. Like, yo, I saw that you picked this up. Like obviously things are going pretty well. You picked up the new whatever. Like that vulnerability as men, I think, goes a long way in our dialogue. And I think it really teaches us to slow down and not turn right on red and have that conversation to folks to say, I'm really checking in with you, like in a real honest way. I really want to know, like, you've got a newborn. I know how that is the first eight to 12 weeks after birth. From a sexual perspective, that's not fun. Combine that with any financial stress that you might be experiencing, coupled with a lot of brand new responsibilities. I just want to make sure you're okay. That rarely check, that check-in rarely happens. And so yeah, I there, think- There always has to be some like, oh, you want to watch the game together. Always. There's always, there's always some like thing to deflect from. Yeah. Right? Always some hook. And so I think checking in with the kids from an accountability perspective, vulnerability with the wife and vulnerability with men. I think vulnerability in general, like if we went down that, that path and we offered vulnerability to the world in those ways, then I think our dialogue, our communication, our authenticity, our opportunities financially, professionally, spiritually, emotionally, sexually, I think it starts to unlock some real magic in the world yeah, when we get vulnerable. 
Well, yeah, the, the big thing is it's, it's unlocking the passage to compassion, to courage, to accountability, to all these different things that are a byproduct of allowing <laughs> yourself to trust that, hey, other people will accept you for who you are. Love your weird, you know, accept yourself. You know, you, you accept so many other people freely and you accept your kids freely. Why wouldn't you accept yourself that way, right? And so I think opening yourself up, the authentic self, requires that you do that like the vulnerability the intentionality those two things have to be present and accounted for before any of those other things can happen right they're kind of a domino effect well speaking from experience a lot of men like myself don't want to burden others we feel yes. like we can burden you yep. that's that's yeah. a hard thing or we it's don't a, and we that, don't want to bring our and, problems to especially like our spouses like our wives because we don't know how they're going to react or we know that they won't react positively so the thing is we do it good though in like sports and stuff yep like, like in the military like bro my back's killing me i need you to take the ruck for a minute you know like we we do it in all these other aspects of life but when it comes to like the things that really count we just hide from it like like somehow we don't know how to do it and, and i was just as guilty of it man like we, we all been pouring out our own personal stories here that's like that was my whole life <laughs> was not not you know letting down my guard and stuff but yeah, like to what Justin was just saying, that will kill you. That that lie to yourself that oh, I just don't want to burden them, or you know they got a lot going on. It's like no, you need to tell them, man. You've got to tell someone that you know, like, is a friend, a family member, someone who's earned that like trust, right? Like, dude, I'm I'm straight up not doing good today. Like, you need to be blunt sometimes, and if you don't, you're just ensuring that your suffering without purpose continues, right? You'll you'll continue to suffer. There's just not going to be anything good to come of it, right? Um, so true. So I think, uh, Justin, I think maybe now is a good time to, to switch. Yeah, over so we have, uh, it's my favorite question. We ask it to every guest, and I'm just curious your thoughts on it. But um, what is a favorite core memory or story that you has, have had since your start of fatherhood? Hmm. Oh man, there's like 15 of them today. Okay. Like your favorite, I would tell you, I would tell you, so my daughter Kennedy got this guitar <laughs> for, I think it was for Christmas and she's an artsy one, piano and whatever. And for some reason it was bedtime I decided to pick up that guitar and the only song that came to my mind was the Lion King narrative. I don't know why. Anyway, so like I guitared horribly, by the way, because I've never played a guitar, but I like strummed in the girl's room, like Hakuna Matata or Lion King or something like that. <laughs> I love it. And right. And then anyways, it was giggles and fun and everybody went to bed. And then two days later, um, I was, I was in my other daughter's, they've got four bunk beds in this one room. It's nuts. And so I was in my other daughter's bed, laying on her bed, reading her a book and Kennedy brought me the guitar. And I was like, this life is about experiences for these girls, no matter how goofy, no matter how off the cuff and silly I looked or sounded or was. It is my obligation to make sure that these girls 
have experiences with their dad that will last a lifetime. And when she brought me that guitar, it, it, it cemented something in my brain that said these three girls have to grow up knowing that I'm here, I'm present, and I will always show up for them. Well, the other one is a little more deep, so get ready. Uh, this is going to be a roller coaster, but Here we if go. you knew your time was short and you had mm -hmm. to give your girls some advice or anybody, uh, as far as your children, advice mm -hmm. before you left this earth, what would that advice be? Man, I would tell my girls to just try to emulate their mom as much as possible. That's as that's as succinct as I could possibly be. You know, when when God made Melissa, he definitely made her for me. You know, I think that we I think that we get married oftentimes for some of the wrong reasons. And they turn out to be the right ones in the long run. Um Melissa was beautiful and articulate and but Melissa's only desire in life was to be a mom. Um and so I knew that if I was going to go out and conquer the world, I knew that I didn't know how to be a dad. I didn't have a role model as a father. And so I knew that if we were going to have a, a shot at a family, the way that I had envisioned it, dreamed of it, thought about it, that I had to have somebody who was only focused on the family. And that's Melissa. Melissa is the the butcher, the baker and the candlestick maker. And she is the most selfless individual I've, I've ever met. And so my advice for my three girls would be to try to emulate their mother as much as possible. The way that she cooks, the way that she bakes, the way that she loves, the way that she selflessly gives. And then if I were to tell Brock the same advice, it would just be the inverse to try to marry somebody who has those same qualities as your mom. Amen, man. So beautiful. That's awesome. And you know, what a gift too. I think we live in a day and age um, where women are expected to work just like men, um, you yep. know, chase career just like men. And they're almost shamed if they don't want to do that and they want to focus on becoming a mom. Like that's lesser than, and I would argue it's greater than. Um, and, and like, just like you were just described, I just watched you light up just thinking yeah. about it, right? What a blessing, what a beautiful gift that only she can give, you know? Um, Huge blessing. Huge amazing. blessing for her Instagram actually says professional homemaker because she had, she had somebody ask her, like your husband does all these things. What do you do? What do you say when people yeah. ask you, what do you do? Like, you can't just be a mom. And I thought like, but why not? Because, yeah, because Instagram told me that I couldn't. Right. Like, I'll tell you this for years. We had this quote, no success in the world will compensate for failure within your home. Mm. Man, that's good. Yeah. That one resonates. That one hits. And so that one for me is, is important. Melissa is our rock. She's my, she's my reason. She's my why. So I would tell my kids stay as close as possible to her and emulate her and marry someone like her. I love it, man. It's beautiful. Travis, um, best place for people to, to follow you, support you, Track what you're doing. Anything you we got a big plug? Lafayette, uh, 26 acres just outside, just northeast 
Lafayette. No, I'm just kidding. I don't even know if there is a Northeast Lafayette, but there is. There is. Come on down. There, there is. Is there a pig farm? Golly. If anybody's listening to this, uh, I'd like to spend three days, two nights, three days, to be super clear, uh, on a pig farm. I'd like the pig, little piglets come off the trailer. I'd like to sort them. I'd like to grain feed them. I'd like to pull the pigs that don't make it. Anyhow, I digress. Uh, best place to find me, um, theinnercircleevent.com and Instagram, most definitely. I am Travis Ritchie. Um, I always answer. I love to. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to build a pig farm, Justin. I got to get it. It's a it's a thing. And I'm sure I'm going to be sorely disappointed, which is why I got to go. I got to do like two days of it. Like I have this wacky. I'll leave you guys with this. You can totally cut this out, by the way. Um, one day, like when the kids are don't have to watch me do this, I want to go and spend like a week at every profession, uh, profession, I shouldn't use that term, a job. I want to spend a week at every job that you always wanted, but you never wanted. Like I want to work a week at McDonald's. Just but to only, know, but only just because, to know what it's like. Yeah, because only it, it, it's only going to be fun because you know you don't have to be there, right? So like, you'll, you'll be like Mike Rowe, just not dirty jobs. Yeah. Bad jobs. And then I'm going to have Brandon write a book about it. It's going to be like 52 <laughs> weeks of jobs that you always wanted and never had. Like We, we can make a podcast series about it. Right. Like, I don't want to be over the road trucker for five days. That's it. Like, right? Yeah. Like, right? Like, just <clears throat> anyways, like Nor- NorCal, SoCal, like long the coat. Anyhow, just a little 52 weeks of just jobs that you never knew you wanted. Bam. So I digress. Anyhow. Yes, folks. Happy to be here. Super grateful. Hopefully it's changed somebody's life. I mean, we all go to hell twice and we all come back. Like, I think that's the narrative that I want to put out is social media is an absolute lie. Abs don't come in six minutes. You don't make millions from your mom's basement and nothing good out of the world doesn't come from accountability, vulnerability and suffering. I think those are the real ingredients to success. And I think once you're in the depths of that, whether you've lost somebody or losing somebody, losing yourself, I think to really look yourself in the mirror and go, I got an opportunity here. That is where you start to pivot. If you take all of this pain that you're experiencing and you turn it into greatness, then all of the pain becomes for good. You can't wallow in it. You can't worry about it. You can't change it. You have to turn it into greatness. And that to me is really where we all set. It doesn't have to be monumental. You don't have to lose somebody to a horrible disease. You don't have to go be incarcerated. You could quite literally just not be able to get out of your way this year for some reason on January 2nd, but you know that you're greater. You know that you're destined. You know that you're more. And I think that to me is like, turn off the podcast, ignore the white noise, stop talking to the clowns, shut down social media and start on that page. What do I really want to do? Where do I want to go? Who do I want to be? How do I become? All of these things are inside of you. Those answers, you think about them, you write them down, you manifest them, you pray. And at the end of the day, like I tell my eight-year-old, you got to execute. That's the recipe for success. No masterminding, no no Amazoning, no David Gogginsing. Love the guy to death, but you're not going to do an ultra marathon and change your life. You got to do those things prior to and lay the foundation. So that's my story, folks. It's been great. I've been incarcerated. I've been to hell and back twice. And my life has never been better. It's American amazing. freaking dream. No, I'm That's kidding. Right. Cut that. Nah, I mean, you kind of are living the American dream now. So, Travis, I want to thank you for being vulnerable, sharing your story, um, and just all the advice and wisdom through this episode. It's been, been awesome, man. I, I had an absolute blast. So, thank you for your time. Thank you for the gift of your willingness to share. And uh, 
All right, dads, you heard it from Travis. Let's execute. Let's get climbing that mountain. We'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Present Fathers Podcast. Make sure that you subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Spotify to catch all of our amazing episodes. We will see you in the next one.